Welcome to America in Focus, powered by TheCenterSquare.com. I'm John Spataro, and this is the 29th week of 2021. Coming up, we'll take a quick look at one of the top stories from TheCenterSquare.com, and later, executive editor of The Center Square, Dan McCaleb, and DC reporter Casey Harper will take a deeper dive into some of the top stories of the week, including rising home prices and rising jobless claims across the country, a new report on wasted unemployment dollars from the federal government, and the latest on President Biden's massive infrastructure bill. Coming up right after this on America in Focus, powered by TheCenterSquare.com. Hi, this is Chris Krug, publisher of The Center Square. Our team produces the nationally read and recognized news stories at TheCenterSquare.com, the country's fastest-growing, nonprofit, nonpartisan, state-focused news and information site. We deliver essential information with a taxpayer sensibility through reporting that's easy to understand and easy to share with your friends and family. We know that you need information that allows you to understand what the governor and your local legislators are doing. Get the news that you need to know at TheCenterSquare.com. That's TheCenterSquare.com. TheCenterSquare.com. Welcome back. Here are the top stories of the past week on TheCenterSquare.com. Railroad industry experts are worried a new executive order may reduce competition and increase costs. President Biden signed the order last week, which calls for something called forced switching, which requires railroads to open up their lines to competitors. Last fall, hundreds of state officials and business executives signed a letter to the Independent Surface Transportation Board urging the federal government not to pursue forced switching. A recent analysis by Forbes found that since 1980, the amount of goods shipped via rail has doubled and would have cost nearly $70 billion more if the same goods had been shipped by truck. To read more about this story and many others, visit thecentersquare.com. Now for a closer look, over to Dan McCaleb and Casey Harper. Thank you, John. Welcome to American Focus, powered by thecentersquare.com. I'm Dan McCaleb, executive editor of the Center Square Newswire Service. Joining me this week and every week is Casey Harper, Washington, D.C. Bureau Chief for the Center Square. We are recording this on Friday morning, July 23rd. Casey, as we're recording this, the opening ceremonies of the Summer Olympics are underway live from Tokyo, Japan. Are you an Olympics fan and will you be watching? Um, I'm a U.S. of A. fan, Dan, and I'm also a fan of winning. And those things uh, tend to go hand in hand when the U.S. is at the Olympics. So... I definitely like to check in. I like that you never know what's going to be on. And, you know, uh, there's always some sport, often sports you never even heard of. But I'm looking forward to it. Is there a sport in the Olympics that you never watch uh, uh, you know, three and a half years or th- uh, three and a half years out of four, but during the Olympics you might t- turn into, tune into for a little bit? Pretty much every Olympic sport is that way. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I know this is a winter Olympics, but I'm fascinated by curling where they have the little brush and they're brushing the uh, ice. Have you seen that one? I'm familiar with curling, but this is the summer Olympics. We're not, mm-hmm. it's, we're not in the winter Olympics. Uh, swimming, uh, track and field events, um, mm-hmm. cycling, anything, anything? No, no. 
Yeah, it's okay. I feel like swimming is kind of not as now that you know Michael Phelps isn't just right. getting fifteen gold medals every time has kind of fallen out of favor. But uh, yeah, and I also like uh, basketball. So, well, of course, that's a sport you probably watch year round, year in and year out. So sure. All right. Well, why don't we move on into the news out of Washington D.C. this week, uh, Casey? A couple of new reports uh, released this week, one on home prices soaring, the other on, on unfortunately, unemployment, uh, new unemployment claims uh, increasing as well. Why don't we start with the home prices? Uh, what did we learn this week? Uh, yeah, we learned that you should have bought a home a few years ago. Um, <laughs> so the, the National Association of Realtors um, just released data on Thursday that said the median existing home sales price increased by, wait for it, 23.4% from June 2020 to June 2021. So that's the second highest recorded since 1999. So, you know, 23% 23% in one year. That's pretty significant. Correct. Yeah, that's a great investment. Yeah, yeah, so if you if you're currently a homeowner, that's that's not necessarily bad news. You 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 just made some money on your investment. If you're however, if you're looking to buy a home right now, that can be that can be tough. Yeah, but, and I think we all remember, you know, another time when home prices skyrocketed and it didn't end well for everyone. So Right. Yeah. Uh, uh, hopefully we're not in the midst of a new bubble. Um, of course, if you're in high property tax states, when your when your home values go up, um, your assessed values go up, you're going to pay uh, more in property taxes. So there's also there's also that. Um, mm -hmm. uh, what I what I'm hearing is what part of what's driving this is is that just demand for new home demand for homes is up, inventory is way down. Um, so people are out, are, are having their bidding wars essentially on homes across, particularly um, in in states that are seeing significant growth in population. Um, anything more about that report uh, before we move yeah. on to unemployment? Well, I'll add on that. Uh, I think inflation is playing a role in this too. You know, we've talked a lot in this podcast about how uh, inflation has really increased in the last twelve months, um, and when you see that inflation, some parts of the market respond. You know. Um, bankers, different people, they know this is happening and, and they adjust, uh, adjust things accordingly. So, you know, not only is uh, the home prices are going up, but it takes, you know, the money that pays for it is, is worth less. Um, <laughs> not worthless, but worth less. Uh, and then, you know, the other thing that we mentioned was that, um, let's see, I have it right here. The Department of Labor showed that basically 419,000 Americans filed for first time unemployment claims uh, for uh, through last week, which is up like 51,000 people um, from the previous week. So what that really means is 51,000 more people filed for unemployment, which kind of goes against the grain of what economists were seeing and hoping for, which would be a downward trend in unemployment. Um, but this, we saw a big spike in people filing for new unemployment. Um, it's, it's even more interesting is, you know, we there's kind of new fears around this Delta variant. Are we going to go back into another dip? Um, what's going to happen with that? But yeah. and that that seems to run contrary to to, to um, you know businesses uh, across the country uh, have been struggling to find workers to come back to work 
many have blamed it on these enhanced unemployment pandemic related unemployment benefits um, that the federal government $300 a week on top of state benefits um, uh, that the federal uh, uh, the Congress essentially uh, approved and, and President Joe Biden signed. I, it, 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 why are these? Why does unemployment uh, new claims continue to spike when there's so many open jobs out there? Do we know that? Yeah, that's a great question, Dan. It's, it's kind of a riddle or puzzle that people are trying to solve. Um, Republicans would say that these federal unemployment benefits, which are three hundred dollars a week that you alluded to, are just too generous. And in a lot of states, when you combine that with um, state unemployment benefits, which people will also be receiving and other um, unemployment uh, like you know food stamps and, and different things like that um, that really people's needs are being met and they they can do just as well um, on unemployment as they are as they can do going back to work and we covered a, a morning consult survey which found that 1.8 million 8 million Americans 1.8 million Americans uh, just said on the, on the survey that they had turned down a job even though they were unemployed um, because the unemployment they were receiving was was so generous, they didn't want to go back to work. <laughs> so the data is kind of backing this up. But I mean, you can kind of and if, now if you add in these new child tax credits, um, I don't know if you know anyone, Dan, who started getting these payments. But I know a couple of families that, you know, one's getting you know eight hundred dollars a month, and one's getting I think twelve hundred, wow, you know, around twelve hundred dollars a month in these payments. So you just start getting child tax credits, you get weekly unemployment payments, you get state. Um, we, unemployment payments, you have, uh, you know, Medicaid or some other uh, benefits and all of a sudden, you know, you can going back to work, we'll, we'll go back to work, we'll take those away from you. So, and that's a big problem. Mm. Um, we need to get America back to work. Um, now, the, the 419,000 new claims from last week, it, it's certainly down um, from the height of the pandemic back in late March and April and May of last right. year when we were seeing more than a million new claims, but it's still significantly higher um, than new claims filed pre, uh, pre-pandemic. Um, so it's certainly a story we'll be following uh, at the Center Square, thecentersquare.com uh, in the weeks ahead. Um, anyone who's rooting for the American economy, I'll admit I'm rooting for the American economy, want to see those claims uh, start coming back again, but uh, it's kind of concerning that they come back down again. It's kind of concerning that they haven't um, yet. Let's stick with uh, unemployment, um, Casey. Uh, another uh, new report out um, shows that uh, uh, across America, um, we've been overpaying unemployment benefits to the tune of at least $12.9 billion. What can you tell us about that? Yeah, another day, another $12.9 billion wasted by the federal government. Uh, <laughs> I mean, this may not come surprise to some people, but uh, the Government Accountability Office, which is a federal watchdog that, you know, it's a federal group that is in charge of auditing and inspecting these kind of things and releasing these kind of reports. Um, they, as you said, uh, found that $12.9 billion um, had been overpaid in a small window, basically from March of last year to April of this year. So roughly a one-year window, um, it's very recent, $12.9 billion had been overpaid by the states in federal unemployment, uh, or not federal, just by state, you know, unemployment payments. So, um, and even and worse than that, GAO said that the actual numbers are gonna be higher because, you know, seven states haven't even reported yet what their, you know, uh, their overpayment was. So 
it's actually 12.9 billion is, is going to very that's likely the, increase. That's the low end, right? Right. So it's probably billions uh, more than that. Now, what can you, is this, is this, are, are these fraudulent payments? Are these mistakes made by um, governments? Is it a combination of both? What's, what's, what's driving the, the, the overpayments? Uh, you know, is it they're saying that never chalk up to um, malice what can be explained by incompetence? <laughs> So less than 10% of these payments are fraudulent. Um, and the vast majority is just good old fashioned federal bureaucracy, putting an extra zero on there or something like that. It's just overpayment, uh, waste and abuse, not fraudulent. So um, I don't know about you, I, I was not fortunate enough to receive one of these extra little checks. Um, some, you know, did you get one, Dan? Did you get some of the spillage from this? I did. I did not get one of these, but I will say that I, I, and I, I know many others also who had uh, f claims filed fraudulently in my name. Um, uh, maybe about six months ago, I heard from our uh, really? human resources department, yes, yeah, saying someone had filed for unemployment benefits uh, in my name, and of course, then you have to go through all the uh, all the bureaucracy to to to. Um, um, report it and say I I'm not unemployed I don't need unemployment mm -hmm. benefits um, this is incorrect and you have to go through the credit checks and you know make sure um, uh, that someone hasn't fraudulently fraudulently um, used my social security social security number for other things or whatever so it's a bit of a pain um, and and I know I'm not the only one I know plenty of others um, who've had the same thing uh, happen to them. Yeah, sorry, I thought you wouldn't mind, um, but <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you better I, be yeah. careful, Big Brother. Might I'm, be less than No, just yeah, don't don't put that in the transcript, um, FBI, whoever. <laughs> so it's the end of July, Casey. Moving on, um, summer seems to be flying by. Pretty soon, we're going to be in back to school mode. Parents across the country are going to be back to school mode, depending on where you live. Um, some schools uh, are opening in just a couple of weeks here in August. Um, one of the the big stories in states uh, across the country have been um, this push by some groups to um, adopt critical race theory uh, in education programs across the country. Well, there's a new poll out this week about uh, about that, how parents feel about that. What can you tell us about this? Right. You, if you've been paying attention a little bit, you've seen just ongoing debate about critical race theory. A lot of people are upset about it. You've seen probably these, uh, the footage of parents at town halls getting um, very agitated, you know, yelling. I've seen where people were arrested um, protesting parents at, you know, um, like parent teacher town hall kind of th events getting arrested and, you know, this poll is kind of showing why. So um, we're seeing a, a pretty large percentage of parents who are just so upset about critical race theory. They're even talking about taking their kids out of school, running for school board. So according to the, to the polling, um, 31 or 38.1%. So nearly 40% of Republican voters say parents who oppose critical race theory should remove their children from public school if critical race theory becomes part of the curriculum. Now, you may say, no, it's not even the majority, but uh, it's hard to imagine the impact that it would have on the public school system if 40% of parents, Republican parents, took their kids out of schools. I mean, the schools can't even 
that would be a seismic shift. I mean, that would be if this really even half of those parents really did that in one or two years, um, there would be that would be the largest shift away from public schools that probably we've ever seen. Um, that number goes down for Democrats is 20.9% of Democrats and 22.9% of independents. Um, and then it all, uh, the poll also found that 29% of just American voters uh, say parents who oppose critical race theory should teach their views at home without interfering. So uh, that's kind of the opposite side of it. But just to see that there's 40% of Republican parents who are you know, talking about taking their kids out of public school if this becomes mainstream would just have a huge effect on local districts, on funding, on the number of private schools. I don't think public schools would ever recover from it. Let, let, let's come to come back to that uh, that point in just a second. But critical race theory, it's it's a very complex um, issue. I don't think the mainstream media has done a great job explaining what critical race theory is. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know that I've seen a, a definitive um, definition of c- critical race theory. Can you just briefly describe what critical race theory is? Yeah, you're right. It is hard to define. And, define, and part of the problem for that is that every time someone defines it, some of there's someone who will kind of correct your definition. <laughs> so just with that kind of uh, disclaimer, you know, there's probably someone out there who will contradict this definition because there's not exactly an agreed upon. Um, correct. Society, yeah. You know, society thing, but it's basically um, it reframes American history um, around the, the idea that uh, racism is a core, really you call it like a core value. Of America from the from the beginning, that America is fundamentally racist today, and it always has been, and that racism should be considered as a driving factor for major events like the American Revolution, right? And it's closely tied to the sixteen nineteen project, um, which the New York Times project, right? The New York Times project, and the reason it, you know, it's called the sixteen nineteen project because that's when African slaves were first brought to the American continent. And so the idea is that America's um, birth should be framed around 1619, not 1776, um, because they would say that 1619, when um, African slaves were first brought to the continent, is when American history really began. Um, And so it really is a it's a bit it's a very radical shift away from how we would understand history before how history has been taught in American schools. Um, it really views everything in American history through the lens of racism, seeing racism as a primary um, motive. It really emphasizes that. So opposed to the themes of liberty and independence and self-government that were probably emphasized in, you know, your history classes growing up and my history classes growing up, um, you know, the racism of not just the founders, but of people all throughout history would be highly elevated. And that's kind of the lens that things are viewed through in critical race theory. So, so I can understand what I can understand why it would be a very contentious issue um, uh, with with parents and students across the country. Um, so, going back to the poll, um, uh, where forty percent of Republicans said they would uh, pull their students out of public schools. Um, separate from that, since the beginning of the pandemic, um, because many public schools stayed closed um, for for months. Uh, close, I should say, to face-to-face learning and went to uh, 100% remote learning early during the pandemic, even into the fall of last year. 
um, even into the into the uh, new year, uh, January 21, many schools didn't get back to either uh, like a hybrid model where they're in school mm -hmm. two days a week, they're learning remotely two or three days a week or whatever. That dramatically, uh, not 40%, but many parents got so frustrated with that that they took their kids out of public school, chose private schools, chose homeschooling or whatever. And that in its and that's just a few percent. Um, yeah, if you get to 40% of people, and I don't expect, I certainly don't expect uh, uh, numbers anywhere near that, but even a fraction of that, that would have a dramatic impact on public school systems um, ac across the U.S. Yeah, and you you probably know about, more about this than me, Dan, but the funding is affected by how many students you have, right? I mean, so if you lose a significant portion of your funding, that's really going to affect the budget. Right. Well, this this certainly this looks like it's going to be a hot topic for the next uh, several weeks until students do get back in the classroom. Um, um, I I would just urge parents, uh, you, you know, you, you, your school boards meet on a regular basis. If you have a strong feeling one way or about, uh, the other about the teaching of critical race theory, and it's a topic um, at your school district, attend your local school board meetings and 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 have your voice be heard. Why don't we move on to our final topic of the week, Casey? And actually, we're going to bring in um, a guest. Yes. Jack, yes. Uh, Jack Burley is going to join us. Uh, Jack has been an interning with the Center Square uh, since the beginning of summer, working with Casey in Washington, D.C., and all things um, U.S. government. Jack, welcome to American Focus. Thank you for having me. Uh, yeah, so just a little background about myself. I'm a senior at uh, Villanova University, and this summer I've been covering the global minimum corporate tax, uh, some Supreme Court decisions, along with this uh, bipartisan infrastructure package. And that's what we're, we brought here to talk about, Jack, the, uh, the uh, infrastructure package. There was a procedural vote this week um, uh, on the infrastructure deal. There have, there have been bipartisan groups working behind closed doors on a compromise. We're talking about the uh, uh, President Joe Biden scaled down is it $1.2 trillion infrastructure bill now? Um, uh, tell us what happened uh, in the vote this week. Yeah, so this is the uh, $1.2 trillion uh, infrastructure package that was agreed upon by a bipartisan group of senators. Uh, uh, Chuck Schumer decided to put it to a vote. Republicans have been saying they didn't want to put it to a procedural vote yet because the details have not been finalized for it. He kind of wanted to do a similar thing they did with the AA uh, IP bill. Um, and others where they uh, open debate on the bill before the details are finalized. Ultimately, the vote failed 51-49. Uh, Senator Schumer changed his vote to no so that um, he could, uh, so that they could go back to the drawing board. And it looks like they will be sending it back to a procedural vote next week, as early as Monday, some Republicans have indicated. Uh, but it seems like next week they'll have the details worked out and they'll be able to move it to a procedural vote. And it will probably pass based on what uh, senators like Senator Mitt Romney have been saying, that they have at least 10 Republicans supporting it, which is what would be required to get past the 60-vote uh, filibuster. Okay. And so, so uh, there's, of course, there's 50 Republicans and 50 um, Democrats in the U.S. Senate. Uh, Senator Schumer, all 50 Republicans in this this first procedural vote voted against it. Um, Senator Schumer, a Democrat, decided to switch his vote so he could bring it back. So it's it, it, it's um, uh, it's not that he's against uh, the infrastructure bill. It's just that he wanted to bring it, be able to bring it forward, and by voting against it, he would be able to bring it forward again. Is am I am I accurate in saying that? 
I believe so. I'm not sure if it's necessarily actually a, a, a that he had to change his vote, but I think it might have been more just a kind of vote of confidence that this isn't the end. Um, Republicans who have been part of the bipartisan agreement have made clear that just because the first vote did fail does not mean the package is dead by uh, any stretch of the imagination. It is still very much alive. And once they agree to uh, the terms of the bill, once they get the details worked out and they vote on it probably next week, um, if it if it fails there, then that's when the bill could be in serious jeopardy. So I, I'm going to throw this question out there to whoever wants to jump in, Casey or Jack. Um, why should Americans, why should American taxpayers care um, about the, the the fight and the ongoing negotiations over the infrastructure uh, bill? Who wants to jump in on that one? Uh, I'll I'll start, and then Jack, you can um, weigh in. I mean, well, first thing is this bill is going to be several trillion dollars and so there's a lot of american taxpayer dollars going to be spent um and i think everyone has a vested interest in knowing where your money is going and that's why we we like to cover it uh the other reason is it's still not entirely you know it's probably off the table but nothing is official as far as if there's going to be any kind of tax increases to pay for this i mean they've said there's not going to be but you know believe it or not politicians lie or change their minds and so we'll see um, if they actually have to raise taxes on you the listeners to pay for this. And then the last thing would be, um, there could be something built in your neighborhood because of this. There could be some kind of roads, there could be some kind of new program um, that could be directly impacting you. And that's why we've been um, covering it. I'm not sure if you, Dan or Jack, you'd add anything to that, but. Yeah, so the um, uh, the papers was actually one of the things they're still working on, how they're going to pay for it. That was one of the details they're working out. Uh, Senator Rob Portman of Ohio did say on um, an appearance on one of the Sunday morning shows last week that the uh, additional IRS authority had been negotiated out. They were going to um, allow the IRS to go after people who've been evading uh, taxes a little more stringently uh, to raise some money for this bill. But now that that's out, it's kind of a big mystery how they're going to get a lot of that money. Um, and as you mentioned, yeah, it's a, this is a very traditional infrastructure kind of package, very roads, bridges, trains. The traditional definition of infrastructure, unlike the um, reconciliation package, the Democrats are going to try to pass as well. And what uh, Biden's initial framework uh, was when he initially released it a couple months ago. So pushing the conversation forward, Jack, you said earlier you expect that it could be taken up as, again as er the infrastructure deal as early as next week. Yeah, so the some uh, Senate Republicans have been saying as early as Monday, they could vote on it again. Uh, this is definitely contingent on whether or not they get the details fully worked out uh, because the main issue Republicans had with this initial vote was that details had not been worked out and they were kind of voting on just a framework, not an actual concrete agreed to bill. Um, so once that, once everything gets worked out, they will definitely, uh, Republicans will probably support it. At least some Republicans um, will support it. And that is expected to be next week. Uh, Senators Rob Portman and Mitt Romney, who I mentioned earlier, have both indicated they expect negotiations to wrap up by next week. Uh, thank you, Jack. And I'm sure between you and Casey, we'll, uh, uh, you'll be on top of the uh, news and any developments uh, there. You can read uh, Jack Burley and Casey Harper at thecentersquare.com. Um, to follow uh, news out of Washington, D.C. That's all the time we have this week. Jack, thank you for joining us. Casey, as usual, um, thank you for your time. And we'll see you next week on American Focus. <laughs>